0: Hi, this is Courtney Hammond-Wagner with the Finding Sustainability podcast. This Insight episode is taken from episode 42 with Joseph Amen, an ecological economist at the University of Vermont. In the full episode, we discuss Joe's research on money, common money misconceptions, and the role of money right now during the COVID-19 pandemic. In this Insight episode, we highlight Joe's thoughts on shifting value towards sustainability in our economy and changing the goal of the monetary system to resiliency. The piece that I find so interesting about everything you just said and how you lay it out in your work is you make this connection between the power in money being a social relation and what that means for issues of social and gender um, inequity and the sort of environmental degradation that we see going on. And this is what this is a something that I've like sort of intuitively sense, but the way that you make this case of this relationship, I think is really powerful and, and has a lot to say about where we should go. Um, so i wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, the, the sort of embeddedness of money.
1: Yeah, so, so I know that there's a lot of lead up, but we're pretty much there where we can get that nice conversation going. So if you recall from earlier, I said that in the, in the sort of mainstream school, value is the foundation of money. When we think of systems of credit and debt and units of account and power, we can start thinking instead that money is the foundation of value. And that sort of flips this entire value ontology on its head. Again, money is the foundation of value. And by that, I mean the system of money, the system of credits and debts leads and drives what has value in an economy. So that sort of gets at at your question. Right now, we value fossil fuels. So there's a lot of credit that goes into the fossil fuel industry, right? We value um, metals uh, for their use in our phones and things like this. So there's a lot of credit being pumped into those industries. So the, the money system, the manner in which credits are pumped into our economy, drives what has value in our economy. So if we wanted to, shift that a little bit. We could shift our money system to flow, to to pump credit into renewable energy, for example. And all of a sudden we'd see a value shift in our economy away from extractive industry and towards sort of maybe non-extractive or at least renewable forms of energy in non-extractive industries and things like that. And then similarly, if we had, you know, and I don't want to just Toot the universal basic income horn, but this is getting a lot of discussion right now. And, and it sort of feeds into that. You know, if we're, if we were able to put money into the economy for the work that is done in the home, that I think we're all realizing now in this time of being stuck in COVID, that this home labor is absolutely critical and it happens and needs to happen whether or not we're at the office or not. And we're realizing now that when we're not at the office that it happens. Right? So if we could have a system that put money into home labor, then maybe we would value the, the, the community impact of that home labor because right now it's not really valued. If you stay at home there's no way for you to get money to pay your rent, right You have to get that outside of the home. Um, so there's this idea of, of getting money into the hands of places that would uh, that underlies so much of our economy so, Universal basic income and clean energy is just sort of two quick examples of how looking at the fact that money lays the foundation of value by pumping money into those places where we could use them more justly and more sustainably would see a value shift in how our economies operate.
2: Yeah. So um, my brain's trying to make sense of this critique of the traditional kind of efficient market story. And... One way in which it's, I've, I've dealt with this is it's, yeah, I mean, the, the original story is, is, you know, stories are so powerful, right? And so books are based on stories. And then, for, you know, suddenly 50 years later, we've got these, this whole like intellectual edifice based on like a very simple little story of like two folks trading some stuff. And it's a win win situation and everyone kind of walks away a winner. And so <clears throat> the conclusion is, well, let's just get as many of those situations going as possible. Let's like maximize trade. And, you know, you read a, a kind of regular econ textbook and it says, well, efficient markets are efficient so long as all of these exceptions don't apply. Right. So there's no externalities. Uh, it's completely voluntary. There aren't power asymmetries. And you, I, I remember having this moment in like environmental economics thinking, well, 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 wait a minute, like those exceptions are there all the time. Right. Right. So ex- externalities are there all the time. And that's the dominating... Um, dynamic in like environmental governance is just like there's externalities everywhere. And so it's less like whether or not there are externalities, it's more like, do we care enough about the externalities to try to take care of them? Is, is, is that uh, a helpful way to try to make sense of your argument or at least part of it is that it's problematizing this initial story of this being like a, a win-win and really like these, ex- what are considered to be market failures as exceptions are really ubiquitous.
1: Yeah. I mean, you, you bring up such an, a great point because when, uh, when uh, Walra who is sort of the the, the, the person who mathematically created these supply and demand curves when he was developing those curves, what he was doing was essentially trying to mimic a barter economy. Um, and it, it's really interesting when, when you look at what Walra was doing, he was looking at the, the stock exchange and he was looking at how traders we're making stock decisions. Well, clearly, a stock with several privileged people making supply and demand choices about that is is about as close to barter as you can get, right? So, so he was sort of creating a theory on a very small subsect subsection of the planet, in an, in backing out uh, a, a theory of the economy that didn't apply. So, I think you're getting at something. But then, so when I started. T- looking into this work, I was starting to realize that changing our story around money has this side effect of changing our story around basic microeconomics, which maybe gets a little bigger than I was expecting. Um, but you bring up such an interesting point about like externalities, and the question then becomes, are externalities external or are they, are they actually intrinsic to all trade, right? Can you mm, not? Exactly. It, I mean, we think about them as externalities because economists like to say, "Oh, that's outside of this trade mechanism." Well, rather than looking at it than like that, and and not even saying, "Let's internalize externalities," let's just realize that these problems are inherent to trade itself. Um, and so, the, one of the assumptions in barter is that new that these relationships are neutral and powerless, and that's just not true. There, I mean. And I've had arguments with people before about whether or not barter ever exists, um, not necessarily just as an economic institution, but I sort of make the argument that uh, barter doesn't exist. There's always a social dynamic inherent in trade. Trade is, is inherently social, right? If I make a trade with you, even if I see you on the street in passing, if I'm scared of you or you're scared of me, there's a power dynamic inherent in that. And there's also a time lag, right? So there's all these things that there's no such thing as a neutral trade. Um, And so then going to what you mentioned about efficiency, this is why I think we should focus less on efficiency because the outcome of a supply curve intersecting a demand curve is a place of social optimality and social market efficiency. And that's great. But when we realize that, Probably isn't the case. I think it makes more sense to focus on things like resiliency. And when I say resiliency, what I mean is let's 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 be as efficient as maybe we can or we want to. So let's let's not be profligate with printing money for clean energy, but let's uh, let's allow systems that if one you know system fails, there's a backup that's readily available. So, sort of this when i when I say let's move away from efficiency to resiliency, I don't mean scrap efficiency altogether, but I mean scrap efficiency as the end all be all because it allows a, a resiliency allows us to have backup systems and not to go too far into what's going on right now, but I think what we're seeing is we we are holding up the banks and we are holding up big corporations as these efficient allocators of wealth and creators of wealth in our economy and we're holding them all we're holding them up against all odds we cannot let them fail and I think it would make a lot more sense to be resilient in a moment like this to step back let everyone um, we, uh, we could pause the economy something like other countries have, have done like Denmark and just sort of slow down the whole economy l- pump money into the healthcare system Uh, in order for for that system for efficient, uh, for example, to be more resilient right now uh, and be able to respond to this. And then when we get through this, maybe pull that money back out of the healthcare system, right? But when we have this efficiency system, it's, it's always based on allocating value in the best, most, I mean, the ways that decisions are made are at the minuscule second and penny level and tiny interest rate changes. And like that just doesn't allow for us to to respond well to catastrophe
0: thanks for listening if you enjoyed this conversation we welcome you to check out other episodes of the podcast which you can find on your preferred podcast app including Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple and Google podcasts. We'd also invite you to follow the podcast on Twitter, where we post links to new episodes and relevant tidbits about environmental social science. You can also listen to the podcast and find out more about the Environmental Social Science Network on our website, ESSnetwork.net. Feel free to reach out and get in touch with us through the website with any feedback or ideas you have for the show. We would love to hear what you think.